0: But before we get there, um, how many were here last Sunday with, with the church gathering? Um, what an encouraging time it was. Uh, what a wonderful time of worship together. Um, Peyton and Deb did fantastic involving the kids, getting them involved. And, uh, and that was, I hope, a, a helpful object lesson uh, for all of us. And the reason that it's so important that we belong to the family of God uh, and that we are part of the same group that we can, we can call on for help uh, when we need help, as was, as was illustrated in the skit, but that also that we have each other to help us uh, even when we maybe don't want help and we need help and we need direction or focus or discipline or, or whatever it might be. And, and as you all know, if you're part of any family, family is a little bit messy sometimes. But praise the Lord that we can look beyond uh, our failings or our insecurities or our hurts and that we can worship God together in truth and in spirit. What a wonderful promise that we have in Scripture. But I do want to clarify: um, just because we tried to be louder this morning and more exciting, doesn't mean there's only kind of one way uh, that we can worship. The reminder is that God has created each of us uniquely, and some of us love to sing, and some of us, some of us that were on stage, like to make noise. Uh, and some don't, and some like more meditative, more quiet, more orderly, more whatever it might be. And there's no right or wrong in that. There's, there's the difference of we have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are, who are extremely different than we are. And that's good, and we have much to learn from each other. And so our goal is not to just become like another church in how they do things. Uh, our goal is to be passionate about Christ, passionate about lifting praise to him, and sometimes that'll look more loud and exciting, and sometimes that'll look more quiet and humbled on our knees. And, and there's, there's room for all of us to be okay within that. So, so let me just challenge you with this, because I had a lot of people come to me afterwards, uh, kind of on both sides of like, that was really exciting last week, or that was too loud last week, is, is if, if it's too loud, you can go sit in the back, and that's okay. And if, if you want it louder, the speakers are right here, so you come sit right here, and that's okay. And, and, we, and we can graciously offer one another th- the sense that we are worshiping one Lord together, and that whether someone's singing way off key beside you, way too loudly, And it distracts your ability to sing harmony. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what. Uh, That they're praising the same Lord and Savior as you. And they're doing it in the best way that they can. And so that's, that's what we want to be. We want to be a church that's authentic and real and, and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to screw up. And, and we tried real hard to practice yesterday and today and we still made lots of mistakes uh, because that's just what happens. And, and thank the Lord for his grace and his kindness and, and for your grace and kindness that we get to uh, lead you in singing and, and hear your voices. Uh, it's just a truly wonderful thing. Uh, we are, Kevin and I have talked a little bit now this last week about is it possible that that maybe we could do it one more time throughout the year maybe maybe <laughs> maybe somewhere on like an august long weekend where where we have a lot of our people that are away or busy and, and maybe instead of having our churches quite empty, can we gather together again so we 're going to keep you in the loop with some of those things. We want to partner together as much as we can uh, and and even with that said is is we 're talking. At an elders level, we've had a talk, and now the board level, heads up board members, uh, there's something coming to you in a couple of weeks where we're just trying to be as prudent as we can, a, a good stewards as we can with what God has called us to do. And part of that's going to include partnerships in all kinds of ways with, with our faith uh, community and with our brothers and sisters. So I'm excited to share some of that in the, in the upcoming weeks, and, and we'll see what happens. All right, let's go to Exodus chapter 7. Um, Two weeks ago, we took a, a, a break here, kind of halfway through it. We went to Exodus 7.13. And now we have this significant shift, uh, kind of the, I guess, what Exodus has been leading towards. Especially if you, if you have read and, and know, or, or, you know, if you've watched the, the cartoon movies about kind of the Exodus journey. Um, then you know these plagues are coming, and these plagues are coming as, as a, a symbol of God's power. And, what God, and God's sovereignty and what he is doing in the midst of freeing his, his people. But as I was preparing for this, uh, and I've said this before, but initially when you pick a book like, let's say, Exodus, it is is going to take a while to work through. And so you just kind of sketch out kind of how long you think this is going to take. And, and I, I was trying to be all creative and go, hey, let's do 40 weeks in Exodus to represent the 40 years in the wilderness, only to remember that the 40 years in the wilderness is only part of Exodus there's actually lots more in Exodus, and, and so I threw that idea out, and, and then I had all these other ideas, and eventually I just came to this conclusion, is that we're just going to go through it however long it takes, and sometimes text will take a little longer to work through, and for the first time in history, we're going to cover way more than like 15 verses on one Sunday, is we're going to go from seven 14, we'll read all of chapter 7, but we're going to end up going all the way to chapter uh, 9, verse 12, I expect to hear some oohing and aahing, but no, that's okay. Um, we're not going to read all of it. We're going to read chapter seven. We're going to set the table for the idea of how these plagues are going to go, and then we're going to follow the narrative of those plagues and, and how they kind of slowly build one upon another. And the and, uh, end of the sixth plague might seem like an arbitrary uh, place to stop, but as we get into the plague number seven, um, there's a significant shift and change for seven, eight, and nine, and then 10, we're going to spend a whole Sunday looking at that one. Uh, so that's kind of how we're going to do this, and, and I hope that this is very meaningful and helpful to you. Uh, if you don't know the story of Exodus, let me just give you the fastest summary that I can. Is God's people, uh, he had chosen someone named Abraham, and he said, Abraham, through you, all the na- of the earth are going to be blessed. God's uh, goal through this people was not that he would choose one people for himself and everyone else was excluded, but that through this one person or this one family, that all nations would see who God is and that they would be welcomed into this family. Uh, And at the end of Genesis, as as that story continues, is uh, there's a famine in this promised land that they were to to, to be living. And so they fled and they went to uh, Egypt where Joseph was, and that's a whole other rabbit trail that that you can look back on at the beginning of our series through Exodus if you'd like to. Um, But they ended up living there for a long time. And God blessed them greatly in number to the point where they grew so large that they were larger than the Egyptians. And the Egyptians began to fear what happens if they turn on us or join our enemies or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever other thing they might have been scared about. And so the Pharaoh and so this is kind of 400 years later, that Pharaoh turns on the people of God and he enslaves them and puts them to hard labor and work and, and over the course of those years they cry out to God, say we need a savior, we need rescue, we need to be freed from this situation." And that's where our life and their life, while very different in its specific context, overlap greatly is that we' de- Need God's intervention in our lives. We have heartache and pain and difficulty and hurt and opposition and grief and you fill in the blank. There's so many things that we daily need to cry out to God. In fact, on Friday I got the opportunity uh, to go to the St. Martha's home and, and to do chapel with the folks there and under uh, Blanche's what was Sinai? Uh, what was it? Ninety fifth birthday on this last Wednesday, and so if you. Uh, if you want to just maybe pop by and go visit her, she would, she would love that. Um, but as we were there, we sang one song that, that I'm sure many of you know, uh, learned growing up in, in church, if you did, is I need the every hour. And that reminder that there's not an hour that goes by that we don't need God. And sometimes our situation, uh, while different different than uh, the people in slavery here, sometimes our situation necessitates where we realize there's nothing we can do and we cry out for help. And so they cry out for help and God hears and God puts a plan into action of how he's going to rescue his people out of slavery. But but actually we learn that this was all part of God's sovereign plan. That God wanted to use these people, even in the midst of their heartache and their, and their pain, and, and even in the midst of slavery, which sounds awful, but God uses that to bring about redemptive purposes, namely, and we're going to say this a bunch of times this morning as well, that all nations would see that God is the one true God, and that he alone is Lord of heavens and earth. And so Moses and Aaron have been called to be part of this journey, and so that's kind of the, the place that we find ourselves now as Moses and Aaron have confronted Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has said, I'm not, I'm not releasing these people. And so this is where we find ourselves in chapter 7, verse 14. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take, sorry, he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. That very first verse that we read is the reminder, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And God had told Moses and Aaron and all the people that he said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Because God's plan for rescue was not simply to rescue his people as quickly and as efficiently as possible, though that might be what we would expect or even want. God's purpose is so much larger than, than only rescuing them, though that is kind of an objective in that. But God's goal, as we've said over and over, is that all nations would see that he alone is God and that others would see his power, his might, and come to the reality, the understanding that their gods are insufficient, that their own power, their own might is irrelevant, but they need the one true God. And so God calls Aaron and Moses, here's what's going to happen. And the wording is interesting. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning. Go and do this, even though his heart is hard. Go and and begin this process of redemption that I have have planned for him. And remember, he said he's going to harden uh, Pharaoh's heart even more. But Aaron and Moses go, and, and it says really interestingly that they go and do all that the Lord commanded. They're obedient. Now, this is maybe one of the first times that they've, they've been obedient. Often it's come with excuses or, or problems or obstacles, but this time they simply go, this is what God's going to do. And so we're going to be a part of that. But when we understand the context of, of that which I've just kind of laid out for you, in our own lives we'll have a far deeper and, and richer understanding of suffering, pain, heartache, and the obstacles. Because if we view all those obstacles, all those challenges in our life, if we view them as um, simply that God should spare us from those things so that we could kind of get back on the journey with him that we have kind of envisioned, then we're going to look at all those obstacles as unfair, unjust, and and possibly even unrighteous from a God who doesn't love us. That's, that's where it could go. But when we start to see that it's not about my life only and my circumstances only, but that God has far greater purpose in this, and, and he's going to, and we'll talk about this a little bit today, but more so in the coming weeks, is that as Pharaoh hardens his heart more, it's actually the people of Egypt that pay for it. And and they go, please let them go. We can't, we can't stand under this or, or, or in opposition against this one true God. We need to be released from him. We need freedom. Which is kind of an ironic twist as, as the text goes on. And we've used this verse a few times, but I, I want to frame our context within these verses in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Where it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by. In other words, not one bit of your pain is wasted. Not one bit of your hurt or your struggle is, is simply pain. God has purpose in it. and God wants to use it uh, for, for your good ultimately. And we've talked about this lots. We have to redefine what we think our good is in God's sight. And then recognize that God is using us to help bring others into a place of trust in Jesus. And, and there's no greater, more humbling, amazing truth in all of Scripture than that the God who has created all things has chosen us and it says, I want to use you and give you greater purpose than you ever could have imagined. That's the best news that there is. This God loves us and, and is at work within us. Now, this first plague, this is, this is significant in the sense that um, if we go back, we remember that Pharaoh tried to show his power to the Hebrews um, at the same spot, the Nile River, and what did he do? Every boy that's under two years old, we're going to throw in the river, and we're going to kill. We're going we're to stop the spread of the Hebrews before it can continue. And of course, we, if you remember back, it said that even though they tried to do that, that God continued to bless them more and more. And so what God's doing is, in a really interesting way, is that God chooses the same spot that Pharaoh says, look how much power I have over you, Hebrews. And God goes, actually, Pharaoh, you have no power. I'm in control. And I'm sovereign. And I'm going to use this same water that is filled with the blood of innocent children so that you can no longer drink. And if you know your kind of kind of ge- geographical history of that, is without the Nile, the, they had they had no water in Egypt. It's part of Egypt. So they had to dig kind of and filter it through the sand just to get drinking water. And, and, and the Nile had all kinds of other symbolism that exists in that. In fact, one commentator that I read suggested that there's, well, not suggested, he, he made note of this link that exists of, you know, Pharaoh tries to kill all the male babies in the river, and yet it's through that very river that the child Moses is rescued from and then comes to be a part of the redemption of his people through this Nile. And so just kind of all the symbolism and and, and the moment where God says, here's where we're going to start. It's actually very, very significant and very interesting. So the water turns to blood, and and it says the water everywhere, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. But notice in verse 17, you'll read this little phrase, by this you will know. This refrain, by this you will know, is going to continue out Sorry, going to continue throughout the entire book of Exodus. However, basically from this point on, it's pointed at the Egyptians, whereas here it's pointed to Moses and to Aaron and to their people. By this you will know that God is the one true God. Beyond this point, it's going to be that refrain of to the Egyptians that, that you now will know that God is the one true God. Moses, as I mentioned, Moses and Aaron do all that they command. And, um, and then we have this strange little verse that's given in verse 22, which ties back to the end of last week. But there's a pattern emerging here. And this can be confusing if we don't read it in the narrative context that we find it and recognize the pattern. So last week, we saw that uh, Moses and Aaron, they threw their staves down. And what happened? Turned into a serpent. And what did the magicians do? Same thing by their dark arts or their their secret arts, but what did Moses' staff do? Right, so we see, okay, they have power, the Egyptian magicians, right? So we we need not forget this, is that we're in a spiritual battle every day of our lives, and Satan has all kinds of power and influence in this world to trick us up, to bring temptation to us, to try and get us to fall and, and ultimately reject Jesus. But here's the good news, and this is the pattern that's going to emerge here, is that God's already won. He has far more power. And so you see that immediately where the snake eats their snake, and it's just kind of like, oh, that's done, and and we just move on. And and you can be like, well, that's a strange thing to to mention. But as we watch this pattern, you'll see the same. So here, the Nile has been turned into blood. The magicians uh, of Egypt do the same by their secret arts. And so the Pharaoh's heart remains hardened, and he won't listen to them. But there's an implication here in these verses that kind of is ignored. and, And commentator Kenneth Harris points this out. He says, this shows that while the magicians could repeat the sign, they did not have the power to reverse the effects of the plague or to cleanse the waters of the Nile. God alone has that authority. And in seven days, he does that. Now, again, if you're into the numerology and the interesting patterns of numbers in the Old Testament, seven, it's a very interesting point. Again, we'll get back to that later. But you can just kind of see here that, that God has more power than they do. and So then chapter 8 begins, and, and we see the second plague, which is the plague of frogs. Um, I want to take a real quick detour just for the sake of this. Some of your Bibles here, do you have a little footnote? Right by chapter 8, before any even words in that, in that chapter. Some of you do. And if you look down, it'll say, or this is actually chapter 7, verse 26. And then you can get on that rabbit trail of, okay, is this 8-1 or is it seven twenty six Or was there a 26 that was missed? Or is there an 8-1 that, that was two verses? And you can kind of go down that rabbit trail. Or you can remember something very, very simple and not let people kind of highlight this and go, see, there's inconsistencies in the Bible. Is Chapters and verses were made many, 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 many years later than the writings of Scripture. And so that's an interesting thing to go down and to, and to see, you know, how, how did those chapters and verses come in? And, and the groups of people that decided to try and make it so that we could kind of section parts of the Bible in unique order. And, and, and that's all fascinating to go down. But the point is this, is the words of Scripture are true. And they're the same. And so whether it's 726 or 81 is really irrelevant. And so it sounds like a smart, logical argument that somebody might go, well, see, this is a problem, and you can go, actually, that's not a problem at all. The verses, the numbers, that's not inspired of God. That's done many years later to help us kind of categorize some of these things. So the frogs come in, and this is kind of really interesting because uh, the first plague starts at the Nile and clearly ends at the Nile, right, because they dig in the sand for for water to be filtered throughout. Now we have the second plague where the frogs come from where? Out of the Nile into everything. Anyone ever been in a a different place in the world where your expectations of maybe cleanliness is not the same as they are in your own home? Nobody? No one's had that? Okay. Uh, Sometimes, I remember very first time we went to Africa, uh, Shayla and I, we get to our, our place that we're going to stay. It's, you know, jet lag and all of that. So you go to sleep and all of a sudden I see little things running on the ceiling. Well, there goes sleep. Right? Until I learned that the little geckos that run all over the ceiling are actually your friend because they eat all the bad bugs. And so then you're like, oh, please come join me, little geckos. This is fun now. I, I, this is good. Is your own expectation, right? So now just imagine here, that you are making supper at home with your family and frogs have not only come to your house but have infiltrated into your house. And they're bouncing everywhere into, and they even give the detail of in the kneading bowls. While you're trying to make dough to make bread, the frogs are jumping all over that. Like This is a problem. This is God going, man, you, you think that you have power here? Well, okay, I, I, got, I got more. And I'm going to send these frogs into kind of your your day-to-day life in a very kind of disruptive way. But then what do you have in 8 verse 7? But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. And again, you're kind of like, okay, well, what's the point then? Well, all you have to do is read verse 8 and figure out the implication. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, please with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. There's an implication here. Again, they can make frogs appear, but what can't they do? Can't make them go away. Their lives are being directly affected. And at this point, you could argue this is a little bit gross, maybe a little bit of a nuisance, but it's only going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. So the magicians are able to recreate this, but they have no power to get rid of them. And the Pharaoh sees this, and he says, plead, plead with the Lord to do this. Now, There's something really interesting in this verse that took me a lot of reads to figure out. Pharaoh realizes that he and the magicians have no power to get rid of the frogs. But he does still think that he's in control over the Hebrews themselves plead with the Lord to get rid of the frogs, and then I'll let the people go. And I think that has huge implication there. The hardness of his heart, the reality in his own mind, thinking how much power he has. Maybe I don't have power here, but I do have power here. Is he's missing the whole point. Is that God is sovereign over all, that God is in control of all things. And so when when I kind of read this, when, you know, the 17th commentary or whatever it was, not quite, but you know, as I read through this and found this and I just kind of reflected on this, is how often in my own life do I recognize that God is in control here, but I think I'm still in control here. I found a great deal of conviction in knowing how often I try to control the situation. Where I try to intervene and I go, I know God's doing this and I know I I can't He's going to do what he's going to do here. But here, I have control. And and we even say it sometimes, is going only focus on the things that you can control. But my mom used to always say to me, and maybe your moms used to always say to you, is what is the only thing you can actually control? Your response to anything. Is The world, all kinds of things is going to happen to us. There's all kinds of things. And the simple truth is everything is out of our control. Control is... An illusion. And for the Pharaoh here, he recognizes, okay, God has some control. But he's unwilling to admit that God has more. Now notice verse 10 again. What's the point? Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say so, that that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The refrain continues. Verse 13 shows that the Lord did according to what Moses asked. Um, And and, and then this is interesting. The Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in all the houses in the courtyards and the fields. What could the magicians not do? And, And what did Moses do simply by praying to the Lord? So now there's this power struggle that exists where we're not only... Is Moses more powerful than the magicians that serve Pharaoh? But Moses is only a spokesperson to God, and all he has to do is ask God, and God goes, done, over. And so we see this, this power imbalance continuing. A third plague comes. And it's uh, the plague of, of gnats, and there's an interesting consequence that comes with this. Um, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, I should actually say, even though he promised he was going to let them go when the frogs leave, he, he refuses to honor that promise. But so here in this next plague, then his people now are beginning to reap the consequences of this. So it says this, um, verse 17, They did so. Aaron stretched out with his staff, struck the dust of the earth, and in it were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all of the land of Egypt. And so you start to see that the land is being ruined. And this is going to be significant in in plague number five in just a second. And then verse 18 has a very significant thing. Then the magicians tried by their secret arts to do this, but what does it say? They could not. Now we're seeing the pattern continue and get to that next level is they could not do this. And so the magicians say to Pharaoh, they actually acknowledge this and admit it. This is the finger of God. That's pretty significant, isn't it? For these magicians who are like, yeah, we can do anything your God can do. Until all of a sudden, they can't do anything their God can do. And they go, man, we have no, we, we don't even know how to do this. We can't do this. So the pattern continues. Pharaoh's hardened, continues to get hardened. Then the fourth uh, plague comes. Uh, and, and there's another unique thing that happens here. This is the first time that God makes the distinction. He says this plague is only going to happen to the Egyptians. And so the flies are only going to be in the parts of Egypt where the Egyptians live, but in the land of Goshen, where the Hebrews live, that they're, they're going to not have this happen. Now, here's why that's significant yet again, is there's irony, there's... there's a way for us to, to read and to see this is if you remember when Joseph brought his family down to Egypt, he said, go settle in the land of Goshen. Why? Anybody remember? Because that's where the cattle are. And every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptian. So literally what's happening here is Goshen is the place that no Egyptian wants to go and God's going, so you put value here but not here. I'm going to flip it so that your land gets destroyed and their land that you think is worthless is actually going to be the only thing of worth left. Simply as this is man doesn't get to decide what has value, God does. And if we understood that in all of its implications... We would not run after every new trend, every new identity thing that exists, trying to find some place where we fit, where we can have value and importance because we would know that God has created me and you in his image and he loves us desperately. And he has given us value that the world can never replicate. I think that's a very significant point for us to acknowledge and be aware of. Verse 24 points out that the land of Egypt is ruined. So here you have Goshen, well, but the land not. As this chapter closes, we see another really interesting thing. Uh, Pharaoh wants to send out the Hebrews, but on his terms. And Moses has this objection, and here's verse 26 and 27, and this is very significant. So Pharaoh said, you, you can go, but you have to stay within our boundaries. And Moses said, it would not be right to do so, For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? So first he uses logic, but then look at verse 27. We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God. What does it say? As he tells us. There's, there's been a progression for Moses and Aaron. Uh, I should say Moses more. It doesn't really speak to Aaron directly. Uh, that, well, there's always an objection. There's always a concern. There's always a problem. And now they're recognizing we are going to be obedient in the Lord in exactly what he has called us because there's, there's no wiggle room here. God has said this is what needs to happen. And God has purpose in that, that ultimately that he will save his people from that. And so they've, they've begun to understand They've begun to accept that God is in control and that we must do everything that he says. Chapter 9, we see another short account uh, of the next pledge, which is the livestock. But again, in in chapter 9, verse 4, we read the distinction that all the Egyptians' livestock's going to die, but not the Hebrews'. God's showing that, look, Pharaoh, you refuse to honor your promise to let them go, and then you say you'll let them go on all these conditions But they're not your people to begin with anyway. They're my people. And you don't get to determine these things. And so because of his hardness of heart, the cattle dies. And and this is now a continuing pattern of who is paying for Pharaoh's mistakes here? All of his people. Because they're losing all their cattle. Pharaoh is in charge of all things. He has all kinds of luxuries, amenities, as it were, that the regular people don't. But the regular people are losing everything that they have. And, and what history teaches us is when the regular people lose everything that they have, where does it go? To whoever the ruler is. Because their lifestyle will be the last one to, to suffer. And so his own people begin suffering more and more. And then we see the last plague of the boils, and there's there's another thing here. Well, there's a couple of things. One is this is the first time the plague directly affects them in the sense of it affects their bodies, that everyone in Egypt has boils all over their bodies, causing them grief and pain and sorrow. But Pharaoh's heart is increasing his heart is increasingly hardened. Even his own people, their physical lives are now at struggle. But then we have verse 12, and this is what's super important for us to recognize. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The reality here is that this continues to be all God's sovereign plan of bringing about the freedom of slavery of his people. And it might look nothing like we would expect or that we would want. And especially when we think of it in our own lives, God, why don't you just l- let me go of this pain or this hurt or this, this unfair thing that, that happened to me? You know, sometimes we can go, I've done everything right or good. My intentions have been to honor you, and yet these things have happened. And again, if we frame it back to the, what I said at the beginning, that heartache, hurt, pain, sorrow, that God is at work in the midst of those, and they're not something that just happened to you but that God is at work within those things so that we would be able to see his power, his might, and that ultimately we would get to see that through our lives, he's affecting others around us, the same that he promised to Abraham as he's promising to us. That through you and how you live your life, people will see the power that Jesus has. A couple of quick things I want to make note of in here is, at this point, so as we move into next week in plague uh, number seven, is there's a shift away from Aaron doing things to where Moses begins to step into the role of leadership that God has already originally intended for him in the first place. And so Aaron kind of is going to take a little bit of a backseat for a little while, not because Moses is more important. What we're going to see is that God's called Moses to something and he's called Aaron to something. And this was always part of his plan. The second thing... Uh, that we want to do is the escalation of God's power continues here. So we, we read this, verse 11 of uh, chapter 9. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Not even they're spared now. And so Pharaoh's right-hand men that, that can do all these things, they won't even come and stand before Moses any longer because they have confessed, they have admitted that they have been beaten. That Moses, or God's prophet Moses has way more power than they ever thought imaginable. Simply put, God has won. Now again, for the sake of time, uh, this is where we're going to stop. But in the next three plagues that we're going to look at, you're going to see a shift. In first, the details, they get a lot longer. And the duration of what's going to happen within these plagues. God continues to show that even, even at this point where the magicians can't do anything and the land is being completely destroyed and there's going to be, we're going to read next week, there's nothing left of value in Egypt. It's, it's ruined Is Pharaoh still so arrogant to say, I will not let the people go. And the irony in all of this is that God could have let them go at any point. But God's purposes, again, are much greater than just his own people. But that's so that everyone would see his power. So that all nations would recognize this. And you're going to see in the coming weeks, some of the Egyptians look at this and go, like, what are you doing, Pharaoh? You cannot oppose this God. You cannot beat him. Well, the same is true of us, and this is what I want to focus on as we close. God is in control back then, he's in control now. If God is in control of the situations and the circumstances that are in my life, then that means they have purpose and meaning. And I think far too often our first prayer when we go through hardship is, God, take this hardship away. Rather than ask God, what are you trying to teach me in the midst of this? One of the biggest reasons, and we learned this from Job, but one of the biggest reasons that we go through these hardships is so that we would recognize how desperately I need Jesus. That I cannot do it on my own. That I am not strong enough. I am not smart enough. I am not talented enough. I am not gifted enough. And that goes exactly countercultural to what our world is teaching now, doesn't it? But it's actually really good news. Because if I read this and I go, man, I am not good enough, I am not strong enough, I am not worthy, I am not gifted, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and yet God's chosen to love me and lavish his grace on me and send Jesus to the cross for me, ultimately giving me the Holy Spirit that I can be part of his family, then, then that's great news because it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. And then that means that has nothing to do with anybody in our lives which means there's nobody outside of God's uh, forgiving power. There's nobody who's done something so wrong or so awful or so wicked that God can't intervene because he and he alone is in control. And That is great news. So that means when you go home and you come at the next challenge or obstacle and you go, God, I, I don't know if I have the strength to face this. You you actually don't have to say that. You can say, God, I know I don't have the strength to face this. But you have promised you will walk with me in the midst. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if the situation will change. I don't know if you'll be released from that. Or I don't know if that, like when Paul pleads to have his thorn in the flesh removed, maybe all God's going to say is, don't worry, my grace is sufficient for you. And I'm going to walk through this with you for the rest of your days. I don't know how it ends, at least on this side of eternity but we do know how it ends on the other side of eternity. That one day there'll be no more pain, no more hurt, no more crying, no more tears. Because all things will be made right. God's plan for your life is so much bigger than your current circumstances. And while we don't understand exactly what God is doing most of the time, we can choose to trust that he is still at work. Again, my most quoted chapter in the Bible, Romans 8 31 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's a promise in that that we need to take to heart. God has already won. I want to pray really quickly, and I forgot to do this to Jordan at the back. There's a a song that you can find on YouTube. Shayla, if you don't mind going to help her, uh, called You've Already Won by Shane and Shane. And, and we practiced it last, uh, last yesterday afternoon. And, and our goal is to kind of play that and to sing it together as we move forward. But I want to end with that song, with those words in our minds, remembering the simple truth that despite what your circumstances are now, that God's already won. The battle is decided. So let's pray. God, thank you for all that you are doing. Thank you for all that you have done, for what we read in these chapters in Exodus. And, and God, sometimes we can read it and, and miss the context and miss the progression of what's going on. But help us to read these things and to see that you are at work in ways far beyond just the immediate circumstance. And may we be reminded that that is the same truth in our own lives. You have promised you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. You are with us in the midst of all the hurt and pain and struggle and obstacles of our lives. But that you are at work within those things, both for our good and so that others around us may see and know that you are God. God, remind us afresh as we, as we watch this, this song, as we listen to the lyrics. We don't always know what you are doing. But we do know what you've already done. And so we thank you that Jesus went to the cross. That Jesus was willing to offer his life in place of mine and and each of us. God, thank you that you have already won and conquered. And so we say like Paul in Romans 8, if you are for us, Be with us in these last moments as we consider these words. Amen.